So tonight I would like to reflect with you and to uh, consider and investigate the question of clinging or attachment and the possibility of non-clinging or non-attachment, the process of entanglement and disentanglement. And when I was first writing this talk and reflecting on the Buddha's teachings about attachment um, really being at the core of suffering, I started to think about um, that this is a little bit like a Buddhist 12-step group, addiction being the, the uh, extreme of attachment. And so I thought, okay, I should come in and I should say, Hi, my name is Eugene, and I'm attached. <laughs> and I really, <laughs> I, I really appreciate that um, the sense of of honesty that there is in twelve-step groups about suffering. The sense of saying I'm an addict. I'm some kind or another, an alcoholic, um, that we don't have to be afraid to say what's true. And that actually truth is quite at the cornerstone of the Buddha's teachings on suffering and freedom. They're actually called the Four Noble Truths. And that the truth itself is ennobling, in that it's the doorway or gateway to freedom. That if we can't acknowledge what's true, we will continue to suffer. In some ways, our practice here is actually just to acknowledge what's true in this moment. Whether we like it or we don't like it, whether it's good or bad or pleasant or unpleasant, whether it's what we want to have or don't want to have. The key to practice is this capacity to acknowledge what's true. And so it's important to be able to acknowledge that we're attached. In the Zen tradition, they have a practice that I really like. It's called confessing your delusion. And it was taught to me by my wife, who's a Zen student. And she, of course, wanted to help me with my delusion. So she's, <laughs> she's helped. <laughs> Help me learn how to confess my delusion. And the way they think about it in Zen practice is that um, there's a, a phrase, sentient beings are deluded about enlightenment. Buddhas are enlightened about delusion. That to become a Buddha means to keep confessing your delusion over and over again, confessing our attachment, our ignorance, our greed, our hatred, whatever it is, until it's gone in the light of awareness and truth. And I think about attachment and non-attachment as really being connected to the second and third noble truths, the cause of suffering, craving, clinging, grasping, holding on, attachment, And freedom, the third noble truth, freedom from suffering, is letting go, 
non-attachment, non-clinging. Jack Cornfield, when he came back from Asia and wrote his first book, he devoted a whole chapter just to this idea of non-clinging. It's a very short chapter. This is the whole chapter, one page. He said, I have reserved the whole chapter to make a simple statement. The entire teaching of Buddhism can be summed up in this way. There is nothing worth holding on to. If you let go of everything, objects, concepts, teachers, Buddha, self, other, senses, memories, life, death, freedom, let go and all suffering will cease. The world will appear in its pristine self-existing nature and you will experience the freedom of a Buddha. And then he goes on to say, the rest that follows in this book are useful approaches and techniques for learning how to let go. And I would add that all the hundreds of books on Buddhism (laughs) are all helpful guidelines to learn how to let go, how to become non-attached. So I'd like to talk about attachment and non-attachment from the perspective of what's called uh, the upadana. And this is, you know, in, in this... In our lineage, in the Theravada lineage especially, there are a lot of lists that the Buddha gave us. There's some people shaking their head. They've heard all the lists already. Four Noble Truths and the Five Hindrances that we heard about last night and the Three Characteristics and uh, um, the Four Brahma Viharas, which I mentioned today, the Divine Abodes and the... You know, the um, five precepts which we began with, and then there's the um, seven factors of enlightenment, which hopefully we're all beginning to look at a little bit, and then there's the ten uh, perfections of a Buddha. I mean, we could go on. There's a lot of lists. (laughs) This is one of the minor lists. It's actually not so well known, but it's an interesting list, an interesting way for us to view um, and reflect on attachment and non-attachment. So the, the four um, kinds of clinging, of attachment, traditionally are known as clinging to sense pleasure, clinging to rites and ceremonies, clinging to views, which is generally considered wrong views, and clinging to a doctrine of self. Or it's also known as a doctrine of personality belief. And so I'd like to explore these a little bit with you tonight and speak about them and the possibility of liberation through non-clinging. This is really a classic phrase in the Buddha's teachings. If you read the scriptures over and over again, he talks about liberation through non-clinging, through non-attachment. And so the first one, clinging to sense pleasure, here's a traditional Uh, view of this. What is sensuous clinging? Whatever with regard to sensuous objects, there exists sensuous lust. 
sensuous desire, sensuous attachment, sensuous passion, sensuous deludedness. This is called sensuous clinging. I have to admit, when I first read that, I thought, doesn't sound so bad, you know? A little passion, a little <coughs> lust, a little desire. <laughs> it, it's really the norm for our world. This is just normal human being stuff. This is attachment to what's pleasant and pleasurable. It's not anything we don't know. We like what feels good, tastes good, smells good, sounds good, looks good. This is the world of the senses, and the senses like pleasure. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. What we might want to reflect on, first of all, that most people don't ever question this. I mean, people don't generally think about it so much. They just try to get more pleasure, so they feel good. Seems right. If you get, you know, a nice car and a nice house and a nice this, and you have a nice experience, you got a good movie and you have a good dinner, it's a nice day, right? No problem. And a lot of our culture is spent getting pleasant, pleasure, nice, good experiences over and over and over again. And we have this, um, it's almost like there's a huge hole that says, fill me with good feelings, with good thoughts, with good smells, with good tastes. And we spend a lot of our life, a lot of our precious human life, pursuing this. <clears throat> and a lot of people think, well, that, that is what it's about, this life. It's not some other, something else to do. You know, we, we have this bumper sticker some people have. Uh, it says, um, whoever has the most toys at the end wins. Have you ever seen that? People believe, sincerely, really, that this is what life is about. <clears throat> and we all know this. I mean, we're not talking about other people, totally, you know. Just, I want you to reflect for a moment about all the things you have. Just reflect. Cars, houses, computers, videos, beds, chairs, cleaning supplies. I mean, you know, can we keep going on? And on? I mean, we, what if we do this? Let's put all the stuff we have in this room. I mean, and this is a pretty good-sized room. We, we wouldn't be able to begin to get the stuff we have in this room. I mean, even if we forgot about the houses, okay. I mean, we have a lot of stuff. And it's fine to have stuff. We, we're not making a judgment about it. We're just trying to see what our attachment is and where freedom is. 
where true happiness lies. Does it lie in having this stuff? It's a very powerful force in our life, in our world, to think that if we just get the right stuff, we'll be okay. There's a story about the Dalai Lama who was teaching in L.A. and he was being driven back and forth from his hotel to this uh, stadium where he was teaching. And he happened to be going down a block every day that had a lot of electronic stores. And the Dalai Lama's a tinkerer. He really likes electronics and stuff like that. And he said after two or three days, he wanted stuff and he didn't even know what it was. <laughs> but you know how it looks really good? Like, you know. And, we, and <laughs> you know what I find so interesting is we want things that didn't even exist 10 years ago and think we really need them to be happy. I mean, I, I'll make a confession here about my delusion. I have a Palm Pilot now. This is like, you know, my whole life is on this little thing that I can put in my hand. And I, it's important to me. <laughs> God forbid I should lose my Palm Pilot. Oh. I'll probably totally awaken at that moment. <laughs> right at the moment, it seems like suffering. And I've watched this very clearly uh, with my daughter, who's 16 now. But when she was about 13 or 14, she got into shopping. It was kind of a new thing. She never cared much about clothes or stuff, but she really got into shopping. And luckily for me, she had a kind of neo-grunge look. And so uh, she wasn't into really expensive clothes, but she really liked clothes. And so I'd go shopping with her. I'd take her shopping. We'd go to thrift stores. Or she found a place in San Francisco called that sold clothes by the pound. And we would pile up all these clothes on the scale, and she would buy them. And then she'd come home, and she'd try them on. She'd show me these. She had a zillion T-shirts, God knows what, and all these clothes. And then after about an hour or two, she'd say, Can we go shopping again? <laughs> it doesn't really do it, these things. Mm. On retreat, it gets a little more subtle. Maybe you've noticed. You know, we get attached to the right chair, the right ottoman, <laughs> the right cushion, or um, my cup of tea. You know, it's wonderful. It's warm, and you can watch the steam rising and the smell. It's beautiful. I've really got to have that cup of tea at a certain time. Uh -huh. Or maybe the, the spot that you found for lunch, especially when it's nice outside. And then you, you notice what happens if you go to your spot and somebody else thinks it's their spot. <laughs> it's suffering. And then on an even more subtle level is attachment to meditative experiences. Has anybody noticed it? Finally, after suffering and body ache and the mind jabbing on and on, you have a very calm sitting or peace comes in the sitting. 
and the breath is just there and it's lovely. And you love it, it's great, it's so enjoyable. I mean, the pleasure is actually, now we're reaching a sublime level of pleasure. And then you go out and you come back and you try to <clears throat> get in exactly the same position to get that same experience. And it doesn't happen. Kokushi said, just as attachment for worldly things is inhibiting and self-defeating, so also attachment for otherworldly things prevents the heart and mind from opening. Now there's a real paradox in talking about sense pleasure. Here's the paradox that I find that aversion to pleasure is still aversion. We can't say, oh, I don't want to enjoy this. That's aversion. Actually, we have to let ourselves enjoy things fully and see their nature. But they're momentary. They come and they go. And I like to add this when I'm talking about aversion to the pleasant or to pleasure is also aversion. Because aversion to aversion is also aversion. It's one of my favorite lines. You know, that, that our aversion comes to things and we don't want to be aversive to that. We want to be able to open to the aversion. So we want to open to the pleasant, open to the unpleasant. And for me, there's a poem by William Blake which really succinctly describes the Buddhist teaching on suffering and freedom. He wrote, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. The attachment. The attachment either way, through grasping, through pushing away. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. I love that last line, eternity's sunrise, because it reminds me of the phrase, that Vipassana is often called the path to the deathless. And then I think, oh, it's the path to eternity's sunrise. Now, there's a... I love this little poem. There is one little problem with it. It actually doesn't point to the fact that... It points to that grasping to what's pleasant is suffering, and letting go is freedom. It doesn't point to aversion to the unpleasant is also suffering and a form of attachment. And so I was thinking about how to do this, and when I, was, I wrote this talk, I was teaching with uh, a number of my colleagues a few years ago, um, and Gil Fransdale had given this talk one night where he, he had two themes. One, just this moment is enough, and wow, 
because he said he'd been watching his mind for the first few days of the retreat and couldn't believe how many thoughts came. Some of you may have had this experience so far. And so instead of just noting it seemed thinking, thinking, or thoughts, thoughts, he kept noticing, wow, wow. So it's a lovely Dharma talk. Just this moment, just, just this moment is enough. And um, wow. And then the next night, Sylvia Borstein gave a talk. And Sylvia just makes up talks out of thin air. She's got a great capacity to do that. And, and there was a lot of dukkha, a lot of suffering on this retreat. There's a lot of suffering on every retreat because there's a lot of suffering. So Sylvia said how much she loved Gil's talk. And she was thinking about just to be alive is enough. That's what the quote was. And she says, you know, sometimes it feels like just to be alive isn't enough. That the dukkhas, the suffering is really hard. And she said, what happens if you drop the W from the wow? You get, ow, it hurts, it's hard, it's difficult. So then I was giving this talk and I was thinking about he who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. And I was thinking, well, how can I get in the other side that if you grasp the unpleasant by pushing it away? And I thought, well, what if you drop the J? (laughs) It's a little bit, you may have to be Jewish to get this. (laughs) He who binds himself to an oi. And this is the important part. Does the winged life destroy? That this is all life, what's good and bad, what's pleasant and unpleasant. It's the moments of our life. Can we touch it kindly, lightly, openly, acceptingly? Mm-hmm. So attachment to sense pleasure. Then the Buddha talked about clinging to rites and ceremonies. And so traditionally, this is really just to see that Liberation doesn't come through a formula. Liberation doesn't come in uh, the, f- the forms of prayer or bowing or any form, even in the form of meditation. That liberation comes in the lived experience of the present moment. And the forms, whether they're sitting practice or bowing, or prayer, or chanting, or devotion, or whatever it might be. The forms are vehicles for this awakening of aliveness in the present moment, of here-ness, of thusness, right now. Kabir put it this way, he said, Are you looking for me? I'm in the next seat. My shoulder's against yours. You will not find me in stupas, nor in Indian shrine rooms, not in synagogues, nor cathedrals, not in masses or kirtans, not in legs winding around your own neck, nor in eating nothing but vegetables. When you really look for me, you will see me instantly 
you will find me in the tiniest house of time. Kabir says, student, tell me, what is God? She is the breath inside the breath. You will find her in the tiniest house of time, this moment. One other way I think about this attachment to form is that we get attached to our way of doing things. Have you noticed? Generally, we think our way is the right way. (laughs) When it's just our way. And so we think, oh, we have to do it, or or life has to be in this form that we know as our way. And we really get attached to that. It's often such a strong attachment, we don't even notice it. It's just the way reality is, right? It's, it's what I know. So there's a way we can begin to pay attention to the whole um, way we see the world. Because it's just a form, often, that we live through. Another piece to that can be really to look at the way we habitualize reality. And we tend to do that. We like it the same way all the time. We're very familiar because it feels safe, comfortable, familiar. We almost uh, uh, can habitualize or uh, routinize the mystery out of life especially Western culture, where we've got so much stuff and forms to life. It's so structured, so busy, our life. I mean, one of the things I think we see here, you know, this is such a simple practice. 90% of the practice is we just take away all the forms of life, all the involvements, all the ways you know yourself in life, and say, just sit here and pay attention to to this, body and heart and mind. It's so radical to take away that involvement and just pay attention to what's here now. You, You all have, I've been hearing it in the interviews, you've all seen that a whole level of, uh, protection is gone. A whole level of defense is gone. There's a vulnerability, a rawness, an immediacy. Sometimes people are overwhelmed by their emotions here very quickly because there's not this, um, these structures supporting the solidity of who we take ourselves to be. It's a very powerful practice to take away our usual, habitual way of life and just be with this bare person that's here. So rites and rituals, clinging to views, traditionally talked about as wrong views, which were uh, speculative views about um, if life was eternal or non-eternal, or all kinds of questions, the beginning of the universe, things like that. 
I think for our purposes, we can think about our views, our opinions, our ideas, our beliefs, and how tightly we hold to them. And what happens as we let go or they let go in the light of awareness? As we start to see that they're just beliefs, just ideas, just views, just opinions, just reactions, that they're not reality. You can notice it on retreat, and some people have talked about this today in the interviews, about the judging mind. It's very easy to have judgments on retreat. I know for myself, I can keep my eyes really down and not see much except maybe people's socks, and I can start having judgments about their socks. (laughs) Why are they wearing those socks? Uh, Why are they wearing them again today? (laughs) The mind. Isn't it amazing how the mind just just churns out these judgments? We won't even touch the self-judgment for now. But the judgments, the ideas of what reality is, even the idea of what a breath is. Sometimes we come up with some fascinating ideas about what a breath is. Mm. And there's such a strong tendency to hold, to cling, to grasp these things as if they're reality. And it can really separate us from others, both in the world and on retreat. And it's such a relief to let go of our ideas, our judgments. One thing I've come to learn, and I have plenty of judgment, really, it's just part of what my mind does, about people and other people and how people should be or whatever it might be. One thing I've come to learn is my ideas, my judgments, don't even come close to seeing who another person is in reality. That when I really begin to see somebody, they are nothing, they have nothing to do with my ideas or judgments. That the lived reality of what's here is so much more amazing than my uh, simple reactive idea about people. My daughter, who um, we do a practice, maybe just a few times a year, three or four times a year together, and we sit down, we just look at each other, and the practice is she's to see that I'm not her dad, and I'm to see that she's not my daughter. And it's a very powerful practice of letting go of an idea and of a belief. And it doesn't mean she's not my daughter, I'm not her dad. It means we each get to let go of the way we've known each other, how we've held each other, how we've concretized or objectified or reified one another. And for even if it's just for a few moments, that spell breaks. It's so lovely to break that trance. And you can do this practice with anybody. And even the closer you are with them, the stronger the trance, usually. You know, because then we have a zillion ideas, because we've known them forever, so we think we know them. Don't let your knowing 
get in the way of the immediacy of any moment. And you have a great opportunity here on retreat to do that. Don't let your knowing of an experience get in the way of what that felt reality is now, even with the breath, even if you've felt the breath a zillion times. Letting go of our views and opinions. Rumi put it this way, he said, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing, right doing, there is a field and I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, opinions, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. When we move into the reality of this world, beyond the world of concepts, ideas, opinions, Suzuki Roshi talked about it like this. He said, I have discovered it's necessary, absolutely necessary, to believe in nothing. That is, we have to believe in something which has no form and no color, no shape, something which exists before all forms and colors and shapes appear. He says, this is an important point. He says, no matter what God or doctrine you believe in, if you become attached to it, your belief will be based on a more or less self-centered idea. Then you will be involved in what he calls an idealistic practice, because you will be constantly seeking to actualize your ideal or your idea. And you will have no time for composure, which is actually his word for mindfulness, composure. If you are always prepared for accepting everything we see as something appearing from nothing, then at that moment you will have perfect composure. He talks about practicing meditation. He says, you may hear rain dropping from the roof in the dark. Later, the mist will be coming through the big trees. Still later, when people are going out to work, you will see a beautiful mountain. But some people will be annoyed if they hear the rain when they're lying in their beds in the morning because they do not know that later they will see the beautiful sun rising in the east. If our mind is concentrated on ourself, we will have this kind of worry. But if we accept ourselves as the embodiment of the truth, this is his beautiful phrase about Buddha nature. He says, we're the temporal embodiment of the truth. Or Buddha nature, we will have no worry. We will think now it is raining, but we don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. It may be beautiful or a stormy day. Let's appreciate the sound of the rain now. The freedom that's possible in letting go of our ideas, our preconceptions, our memory, letting go of what we know. 
And he's pointing us at the attachment now to self, what he calls the self-centered idea. And this is attachment to the doctrine of self or personality belief, sometimes called the, the mother or father of all attachments. Let go of this one and it will get very interesting. <clears throat> and I'd like to read to you a little from the Buddha's teaching about non-clinging, about this, directly from the suttas. And this is from uh, a sutta called the Advice to Anattapindaka. It's one of my favorite suttas. And I'm very fond of Anattapindaka. Anattapindaka is very important to us because he is one of the fathers of our lay heritage. He was one of the first followers of the Buddha who was a lay person and practiced all his life as a lay person and was realized as a lay person. And he, um, he met the Buddha. He was kind of, it's a whole nother sutta, but he was really knocked out when he met the Buddha. I mean, he just got it. This guy knows something. And he uh, was quite a wealthy man and he contributed the first um, land for the monks and nuns so that they would have a place during the rain ret rains retreat um, um, as a place to be in, in shelter. And it was a big deal. He actually spent a lot of money and I thought about him a lot as we were fundraising for Spirit Rock and all these Anattapindakas kept coming forth and offering this that we sit in right now. And so this is when Anattapindaka is dying. And the Buddha hears that he's dying and he sends his two, two highest disciples, Sariputta and Ananda, to go visit him. And they come and they say, I hope you are well, householder. I hope you are comfortable. I hope your painful feelings are subsiding and not increasing. And he answers them, and he's actually not getting well. He says, Venerable Sariputta, I am not getting well. I am not comfortable. My painful feelings are increasing, not subsiding. It's, and then he describes what it's like. This is really a description of the beginning of the dissolution of the body. And it's a classical description, and it's worth hearing. It's very powerful. It's a powerful description of impermanence. Just as if a strong man were splitting my head open with a sharp sword, so too violent winds cut through my head. I am not getting well. Just as if a strong man were tightening a, a tough leather strap around my head as a headband, there are violent pains in my head. I am not getting well. Just as if a skilled butcher were to carve up an ox's belly with a sharp butcher's knife, so too violent winds are carving up my belly. I am not getting well. Just as if two strong men were to seize a weaker man by both arms and roast him over a pit of hot coals, so too there is a violent burning in my body. I am not getting well. And so they realize he's really about to die. It's, it's a powerful image. And he's really, he's right at the edge. And so they give him this teaching, this training. And they call it a training. They say, you should train thus. I will not cling to the eye. I will not cling to the ear. I will not cling to the nose or tongue or body or mind. So they're saying, don't cling to the sense doors. 
Don't be attached to the sense doors. And then they say, don't, don't cling or be attached to what comes in through the sense doors, the forms or the sounds or the smells or the flavors or the touch or the thoughts. Don't cling to any of it. And then they just continue with this radical teaching of non-clinging. Then they go through a whole variety of ways of non-clinging. And they, about mostly at first, just about the senses, because that's such a powerful place that we're attached. And then they say to him, they go to the elements, which we talked about when we talked about mindfulness of the elements. I will not cling to the earth element, or the water element, or the fire element, or the air element. You should train yourself thus, not to cling also they add, there's some more elements, the space element. And, not, and they say, I will not cling to the consciousness element, and my consciousness will not be dependent on the consciousness element. So they're pointing to what's called unsupported consciousness. Consciousness that's totally free. And they say, you should train yourself thus. I will not cling to material form, the body, or to feelings, or to perceptions, or to the reactions to experience, or to consciousness itself. And then they point to meditative experiences. And they say, you should train thus, householder. I will not cling to the base of infinite space, the experience of infinite space, or to the experience of infinite consciousness, or I will not cling to the experience of nothingness, or cling to the experience of neither perception nor non-perception. This is a radical practice of non-clinging. And then they add, they say, Householder, you should train thus, I will not cling to this world, I will not cling to the world beyond, I will not cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, encountered, sought after, examined by the mind. And it said when he heard this, a householder, Anatta Pindaka, wept. And Ananda asked him, they said, he said, are you foundering, householder? Are you sinking? And Anatta Pindaka said, no, I'm not sinking right at this moment. He said, I have long waited on the teacher, the Buddha, and the bhikkhus, the monks and nuns, but I have never heard such a talk of Dharma. He was so moved by the truth and the freedom that's possible in this possibility of liberation through not clinging. He said, such talk, and so uh, uh, Sariputta tells him, he says, well, such talk on the Dharma is not given to lay people. So this is an interesting point in Buddhist history. Um, and the feeling was, the fear was, if this was taught, the, the fear was that lay people wouldn't fulfill their responsibilities in the world. And, and Anathapindaka, speaking for us, says, well then, let such talk on the Dharma be given to lay people. There are those who will understand and awaken with this Dharma. And so this is part of Anattapindaka's gift to us, this teaching of non-clinging.
Now when we think or reflect upon non-clinging to self or non-attachment to self, <clears throat> sometimes people think that means you'll disappear. I kind of did at first. I mean, what could that mean? There's no self. One thing I've seen is that nobody disappears. And that even the Buddha, who lived in Nirvana for 45 years, walked the earth and taught, was there. Had a bad back, it said, even. Sometimes it's hard to see the attachment to the self. This is a little extreme example, but do you know who Kate Moss is? People know? My daughters uh, enlightened me about Kate Moss. Kate Moss is one of these supermodels. She does the Kelvin Klein ads uh, a lot. She's kind of waifish, beautiful woman, probably about 25. I did see in People Magazine the other day, she just got out of rehab. It made me think about the suffering of being a supermodel, rich, and, not, and the suffering that's there. And, but Kate Moss, there was uh, this little quote from her, because she'd written a book. Uh, and she said, to say that this book is about me, which is the main reason she felt uncomfortable. Somebody said that. She said, to say that this book is about me, 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 frightening, is ridiculous. This book is not about me. And this was her talking about her book, Kate, the Kate Moss book. (laughs) 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 That one really struck me when I read it. So let's just reflect a little bit about what we talk about as attachment to the self, or even the construct of the self, the belief in personality belief, in personality. One way to think about self and non-self, in order to help allow the letting go, the non-clinging, is to really reflect on who do we take ourselves to be? What do we take ourselves to be? Remember the Buddha said don't cling to form or feeling or perception or thoughts or consciousness itself. So it's good for a few moments to just reflect on self. And this is the most traditional way to do it. It's very simple. In the Buddha's time they used a cart, but here we'll use a car. If you take a car apart, we're going to start, we'll take the headlights off, we'll take the grill, the bumper, the hood, take the engine all apart, take the wheels off, hubcaps, take the axle, the body, the chassis, the seats, the CD player, the mirrors, the steering wheel. the thing that holds the cups on the inside, <laughs> the windows, the, the trunk, the side panels, the top, the backlights, the back bumper, everything. We just take it all apart. And we put that pile, that stuff in a big pile. What do you have? Pile of 
pile of parts, pile of stuff. A car is a concept. That concept holds together that pile of stuff. Eugene is a concept. Eugene's a really good concept. <laughs> it's not a bad concept. But if we live at the level of concept, we may not see the truth of what's here. And so we could, one of the ways the Buddha said to reflect upon the self is, where is the self? Is it the skin? Or the bones? Or the organs? Or the muscles? Or is it that mass of tissue we call the brain? Or is it the teeth? Or is it the eyes? Is it the hair on the head? Or the hair on the arms? Or the hair on the body? Is it all the yucky stuff I won't even mention inside? Where is Eugene? Eugene is a concept that holds all this together in a certain way. With that car example, if you brought somebody from another planet to look at all those parts, they would have no idea that that was a car. Only the concept allows us to know that we have the concept of a car, that we can have a car. And if you look closely, at any physical reality, it just keeps breaking down to more and more elemental parts. And I don't know a lot about elemental physics, but what I hear is when they get down to the most elemental, it's filled with nothing. It's empty. Just like we are, in essence, empty. And again, it doesn't mean the self goes away. Because, you know, here's Eugene. But that's not all of what's here. That's not the deepest truth of what's here. It's just the relative truth of what's here. And it's my suspicion that you've all had experiences of not clinging to self. Because I think we'd go crazy if we didn't. Actually, uh, Buddha Dasu Bhikkhu says that uh, selflessness is a mental health imperative. That the letting go, and you know it when you just let go, the freedom that's there in a moment, when you let go of things, of people, of places, of whatever you hold on to. And when we let go of ourself and something else comes, that's beyond how we know ourselves, how we've reified ourselves or thingified ourselves. Mm. Kalu Rinpoche says, 
We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you discover this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So when we let go of our self, our sense of self, our attachment to self, we gain the whole world, I think it's said in the, in the Western tradition. And it can come in any moment here. That's, it's a beautiful part of this practice. It can come in the sitting, it can come in the walking, it can come in the eating, it can come in the brushing the teeth. Keep your eyes open. You never know that moment. And I'll just say a few. Just it, You never know how it's going to come. Sometimes you can take a step and there's nothing there but just the sensations touching the ground. And it's exquisite. There's just a step happening and nobody's stepping. Sometimes it can be really dramatic, like big, big deal thing. I know one time I was having a lot of restlessness. And restlessness is not my hindrance generally, but I was having a lot of restlessness, really not wanting to sit and avoiding and something was happening. Finally, I started to stay with what was happening with the restlessness and I started having these images of dinosaurs come. Tyrannosaurus rex. And I was scared. Fear, big fear came. And all of a sudden, it's like this Tyrannosaurus rex just bit my legs off. Really. This is, and then it bit my upper torso off. And then it bit my head off. And then it disappeared. And I disappeared. And it was quite interesting. <laughs> you know, and then later the breath came back or whatever. But it was, it was a moment. It was an experience. And very interesting. Sometimes it's very simple. This sense of letting go of the self. That there just becomes a lightness or a delicacy or transparency that's here. And that's all that's here. You may have felt it. It can come with the breath. It can come in a step. An important piece to remember, and I think this is really crucial in working with attachment and non-attachment, is we don't make it happen. We don't do it. Somebody came in today in one of the interviews and he was in a very happy place and he said the three G's, goodness, grace, gratitude. With our goodness, we practice with our sincerity. This is what we can do. We can bring our heart and our sincerity to this practice. And then grace happens. Insights come, and they come 
sometimes easily and sometimes through great suffering. But we don't do it. It does us. And I believe this. I believe that whoever you are, if you do this practice over time, you, it, things let go. It's not even like we let go. It's almost like they let go of us. Ryokan put it this way, he said, like the little stream making its way through the mossy crevices, I, too, quietly turn clear and transparent. Let's sit for a minute. Like the little stream making its way through the mossy crevices, I, too, quietly turn clear and transparent. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.